Welcome to basic training for home inspectors. I'm Garth Haslam, president of the Home Medic Inc. This particular subject is going to be on attics. The kind of things that you need to know and make sure you notice and write up as necessary when you've got your head in an attic. We're going to talk this segment on insulation, ventilation, structural issues, water issues, critter issues, and how to end your career in an attic, things you really don't want to do or allow. First off, I want to cover the insulation subject. Now, you get into a home, and first off is you're going to hope that there actually is insulation of some sort in there. I've been into a couple of homes during my career. I've been doing inspections for over 20 years, and sometimes you get up there and there is no insulation at all. Of course, the absence of insulation is something you're definitely going to want to write up. But let's assume for a moment that somebody actually had a brain and put some insulation in at some point in the history of this house. There's a couple of different kinds of insulation that you could have in this attic space. And I want to talk about each of them, their strengths and weaknesses, and things that you want to know so that you can relay that information onto your client show to them your knowledge and experience, and give them an understanding not only of why they want to trust you, but really, just as importantly, or perhaps more importantly, what they need to know about the house that they're buying. So let's say that uh, you've got an older home. Maybe it was built in the 20s, 30s, 40s, whatever. You might actually have vermiculite up in that attic. Now, vermiculite is kind of look like styrofoam, pea-shaped, maybe a little bit smaller than a pea. But the location where vermiculite was originally constructed or built or created, there was a lot of asbestos in those. So pretty much, you know, the reality is that you got about an 80 to 90% chance of having asbestos in that vermiculite. But in reality, pretty much if you see that, you just tell them, Real good chance that you have asbestos in this stuff, uh, and you tell them just basically to count on that being the case. Now, EPA says that if a asbestos-containing material, an ACM, has low or zero risk of being disturbed, then EPA says that you're okay. Now, so the question becomes, what's the risk of an asbestos-containing material, an ACM, in the attic. My first thought is, well, it's it's not going to be very much because people are rarely getting in there, and so you've got a very low risk. But, you know, quite often uh, you'll get a person that gets up in there for either repairs or what have you. Sometimes even a critter can get up there and start spreading things around, and depending on what pathways there may be, asbestos can go into the air from a critter, maybe even just from heavy windstorms where you've got things stirred up and then you get that vermiculite and the asbestos into the living space. At that point, you've got a problem. So if you see the vermiculite, that subject needs to come up with your client. Now, cellulose is another one of those options that you will sometimes see. It's much less of a problem than the vermiculite. Cellulose is basically newspaper that has been treated so that it won't burn. Now, nothing wrong with cellulose. It's got 
some green factor to it because obviously it's been recycled. You've got all these newspapers that didn't end up in the landfill. They ended up in your client's attic. So that's a good thing. And as far as our value, it is not quite as good as fiberglass or bibs. And we're going to talk about those in a minute. But there's nothing wrong with it. It's not something you're going to write up that they have cellulose in there. If anything, you can tell them that's good news. Now, next, you've got fiberglass. And that can come in a variety of forms. Back in the 70s and 80s, they used the rollout bats of fiberglass. Usually it was pink. Uh, we've all seen it. And that was okay back in the day. The problem with it, of course, is that it's a bat. It's not blown in. It's just kind of laying there. So basically, you can have people get up there and push that stuff around. Uh, that can be a problem. You can have critters in there and do the same thing. Sometimes you'll get maybe a nest up there, a mouse nest, and they can push holes in things. I've actually seen where a raccoon got up and pushed a bat out of the way and used that particular area right next to the attic hatch for his dinner table. Uh, there was a bunch of feathers right there where a bird had a bad day. So the fiberglass is okay, you know, considering the home was built probably in 1970, give or take. But if you're in there and you notice that you've just got fiberglass laid out horizontally above the ceiling of the living space, hard to write it up, but it's hard not to mention to the client that they can do better than that. So the client's options would be, if they've got an unlimited budget, they could actually just remove the existing fiberglass, get it out, and then blow new stuff in. Usually people don't have an unlimited budget, and so the thing to do is just to come in and, and blow more insulation in. That has the advantage that the gaps between those fiberglass bats and your truss system can be filled in with the blown-in insulation. Now, we covered the cellulose. We covered the vermiculite. One thing I want to just have you be aware of as relates to all of the above, especially fiberglass bat systems, is that your insulation should be on the floor of the attic, especially if they're not using it for kind of sort of living space. If you've got the insulation that is just beneath the roof, that can be a problem because you're basically trying to treat the attic space as if it was living space. Sometimes that's actually what people are trying to do, and if so, that's great. But it creates a, a water barrier, and that's just not where insulation goes. It needs to go on the floor of the attic. Unless, of course, you're talking, maybe you got the home in San Diego, maybe it's in the south, and people, like I say, might be using that for living space. Bibs is the last of the major insulation types. Now, Bibs stands for blown-in batting system. And it is, as the acronym would describe, this stuff is blown in. You can blow it into any depth, and most of those guys who are good can get it you know, pretty even all the way across. Good stuff. Nothing wrong with it at all. You want to avoid compressing that kind of stuff as you walk around the attic looking for things and you know, doing your job. If the house is insulated with bibs, you're going to want to make sure 
because you're not going to be able to see the attic trusses. You want to make sure that you step very carefully so that you don't end up having a 10-foot letdown and a trip to the hospital. So proper depths of R-value conversions, let's just go with something very simple. Basically, and the rule isn't hard and fast, but it's close. If you've got an inch of insulation, count on having a little bit more than three times that amount in R value. So if you've got three inches of fiberglass rollout insulation, that's an R9. And the reality is sometimes that can be turned into an R13, depending on the quality, but that's a ballpark sort of a conversion. So if you have a client says, all right, okay, I've got a 10-inch depth of bibs in there. What is the R value? I want you to be able to tell him what that number is. And you say, all right, if you got 10 inches, that's going to be about an R30. Reality is it's going to be more like an R36, give or take. But again, that gives you a ballpark of what you're doing. Now, in that category, just have you be aware, and we're going to talk about this more in the critters section, but if you've got critters that have been in around and through your attic insulation and turned into Swiss cheese, that R value is going to drop. You'd have 10 inches that should be maybe an R30, 35, somewhere in there, where if it's been turned into Swiss cheese, now you've probably got an R10. So you need to pay attention to that. Next subject I want to cover within the attic category would be attic ventilation. There are a number of different types of attic vents that I want you to be aware of, that you need to be aware of. These are the soffit and gable vents. We're going to cover turtle vents, attic fans, turbine vents, ridge cap vents. All of these vents are good. I don't necessarily want to say that one is better than another, but you need enough of whatever. So the soffit and gable vents are the subject that I want to cover first. A soffit vent is going to be at the eaves, at the drip line of your structure. So, for example, you've got the roof that comes down. You've got, hopefully, a rain gutter system that is at the drip line. Underneath all of that, uh, between the drip line and the walls to the home, you have that space between. That is called your soffit. And, by the way, the difference between soffit and fascia is the fascia will face you and the soffit is not it's horizontal now the soffit ventilation is very important to any sort of a ventilation system for the attic because it is the soffit that provides the air input to the attic and there really isn't another good alternative to that so those soffit vents need to not be covered by insulation, whether it be blown in or whatever. Soffit vents are going to be the perforated vents there in the soffit. Usually they will be every three or four panels if you've got a paneled type system. But you're going to have the perforations in your soffit, and those are going to allow air from the exterior to circulate up into the attic. Then you've got a, a million different types of vents that will allow the air out. Now, let's say that you are inspecting a home that maybe does not have soffit vents. Maybe it doesn't have soffits. You can get replacement ventilation. It's never ideal, but it's doable. 
So, for example, let's say you've got an older home and all it has is gable vents. Now, gable vents are vents located on the side of the home. This is the way they did it back in the day, maybe 1940s, 1950s. Usually those kind of homes had only gable vents, and those are going to be openings on the gable ends of the house. Now, a gable is where you've got that vertical triangle that goes up to the roof line, usually on the ends of the home. If you've got a hip roof, which you'll have to look that up separately because, you know, I, I'm not going to get into roof types here, then you will not have gable vents. But if you've got gable vents only in an older home, what you're going to tell your clients is that this was considered to be adequate back in 1940, 1950, maybe even 1970, but it is not okay now. And the reason why it is not okay is because you need airflow up there. reason you need airflow is the sun is hitting your shingles. The shingles are transferring heat into the attic, heat during the summer, and then a different sort of thing happens in the winter. But let's stay with summer for a minute. You got the heat transferred into the attic. If there is no way for the superheated air in the attic to escape back out into the exterior of the home, back into nature, you're going to have your attic sit there and bake. It's going to bake the roof, it's going to bake the attic, and it's going to bake the living space. Basically, everything bakes. If you have a poorly vented attic, you can easily turn a 30-year shingle into a 15-year shingle or even perhaps less, depending on what else may be happening. So, you got gable vents. If that's all that you have, and let's say you got one on each side of a typical Rambler house, and they don't want to cut holes in the roof, which always would be a good idea. You know, ideally, you're going to have some other sort of ventilation system. But let's say they want to do a minimum amount of ventilation. What you can do is you can actually add an attic fan onto one side or the other of that system and then instead of having a bottom to top ventilation system you're going to actually have a side to side vent and it's not ideal again but it's something that's going to be much better than the system that they've got and then of course when they do replace the roof at that point it is definitely time to add a better ventilation system so next question is what does a better ventilation system look like most of the time, the uh, attic vents that I see are going to be turtle vents. Turtle vents are named that way because basically they're just a hole in the roof covered by the equivalent of a turtle shell. There's no moving parts. You've just got an opening on one side covered by a box so that you don't get rained on. And that allows the superheated air to escape. Nothing wrong with turtle vents as long as you have enough of them. One or two is generally not enough for most homes. Uh, again, depending on the size of the attic, the size of the house, you may need six of these, uh, you may need ten of these, but for a standard maybe 2,000 square foot home, three or four is going to be adequate if you've got good soffit vents as well. So that's the turtle vents. And again, nothing wrong with those. I have seen where mice tried to get into the attic from the turtle vent. In that particular case, they failed, and you just got a you just got a dead mouse that was sitting underneath that vent. Other options 
for attic ventilation. You've got an attic fan. And the nice thing about those is they're kind of like a turtle vent, but you've actually got a fan that is blowing air out of the attic. Those are awesome. They're great. You want to make sure, though, that they are on a thermostat of their own. If we're relying on the homeowner to turn that fan on and off, you're not going to get anywhere near the efficiency that you need because, frankly, the homeowner's not going to be home. They're not going to be around. They're not going to be thinking of it, and it's just not going to happen. So attic fan is a beautiful thing. Depending on the size of the fan, you only need one of them for most homes, but it needs to be actually functioning when it is supposed to be functioning. So that, again, that needs to be wired up on a thermostat so that it turns on when the attic gets to a certain temperature, and then you're good. Another option that you have is the turbine vent. Those are the ones that spin in the wind. So the turbine vents, you've probably seen them. If you've got any sort of a breeze, those are going to turn, and they actually pump air out of the attic weakness to those turbine vents is that if there's no breeze at all or if the turbine vent has actually rusted they don't turn and so then you basically got a, a lame turtle vent one that kind of sort of keeps the hot air out of the house you know those are good if they're functional but probably would not be my first choice now in new homes quite often what you'll see is a ridge cap vent and those are great too basically the turtle vents are ideally located towards the top of the roof because obviously warm air rises and so you want the air that has risen the most to be the air that is allowed to escape if you got a turtle vent that is placed halfway up the roof they kind of screwed up so ridge cap vents are awesome because they go right at the ridge cap, right at the top of your roof, and it is that uh, top end air that they're allowing to escape. And that vent goes all the way across the top of the ridge. Obviously, you've got some ends that may not be vented, but those ridge cap vents provide a lot of square feet and square inches of ventilation. And so for the newer homes, quite often you'll see those those are great. Nothing wrong with those at all. But pretty much any ventilation system that is there and functioning is good stuff. Again, what happens when you don't get adequate ventilation is everything heats up and then everything gets baked and the house is less comfortable. It's more expensive to heat and cool. And then in the winter, you can also get ice dams because at the top where the warmer air rises, you're going to get the snow that's going to melt and then it's going to run down to where the warmer air is not, but still on top of the roof. And then it's going to want to refreeze at that point. You're getting an ice dam and now you've got ice dam problems and those are not cool. They can tear up shingles and then you got water issues, etc. Ventilation is huge for an attic and for a structure summer or winter. So that's something that you're definitely going to want to pay attention to as you're doing your inspections. Make sure that those vents are properly flashed, which basically means, and we're going to cover flashing in another section, but basically that means that flashing is sheet metal and it is going to force water to stay on the surface. So if you've got a, for example, a turtle vent or a turbine vent, 
the shingles need to go over the top side of the vent on the roof and under the bottom end of the vent on the bottom side. And that is always hard to describe, but the, the rule is make sure water stays on top of the shingle. You can't rely on roofing tar or caulk or one of those sorts of materials to keep water on the surface of the roof. So make sure the flashing is done right. Next subject to cover in the attic category would be the structure itself. Now, your attic structure is made of trusses. Those are designed structural supports. Sometimes in older homes, they were not engineered. They were just kind of pieced together, and that is called stick framing. In those older homes built in maybe the 20s and 30s, you get up there, and you basically see this big open space constructed by Farmer Joe, who just wanted to get something of a slope on top of his 1940s home. Quite often, those are in big trouble structurally because there are maybe too many layers of roofing on top of that. You can see the structural stress that is often placed on those. You want to make sure that those rafters are actually triangular in nature, meaning they're in addition to the two sloping sides, you want to have a bottom end that keep the two top ends in the triangular condition. In other words, a triangle takes three sides. If you take the bottom out, then you're kind of screwed, and any sort of a structural load, be it snow or what have you, is going to want to make the two top ends squash, and then you've got big-time structural issues on your roof. In addition, of course, and depending on how the structure was engineered, if it was done basically since about 1990, you should be good. Not always, but you should be good. Anything below then, you also want to see intermediate supports just so that you can have a more structurally strong support system. So you're looking for the old stick frame system. Quite often what happens when you've got wood that is in structural stress, and we talk about this in other segments as well, but you can tell structural failures for different materials. Everything but wood pretty much fails in a 45-degree angle pattern. So, for example, if you've got a foundation, maybe you've got a concrete crack, if it's a structural failure, it's going to be on a 45-degree angle. Now, that is not the case with wood. Wood, when it is stressed structurally, is going to crack in the middle, the middle of the beam. That's the wood telling you, look, I'm overstressed, and I really would like to give up and just collapse. So you'll want to look for that sort of thing inside the attic to make sure that, especially in the older homes, that we're not being stressed structurally. Last thing your client needs and last thing that you need is for the roof to collapse under a heavier snow load than they've had for the last two weeks. Sometimes, speaking of, of attic spaces, it's more than just the house that will have an attic space. Sometimes Joe Homeowner will build a shed and quite often in the shed you want as much vertical space as possible so again you've got the triangle often without the base of the triangle they'll just try to put up the two top sides and hope that the walls keep things together 
not a good idea, especially if you've got a larger structure. I mean, if you've got a little uh, six-by-eight shed, less of an issue. On the other hand, if, if Grandpa tried to create a garage that is more like 15 by 20 or by 30, and he doesn't put in those horizontal supports to keep the walls from separating, quite often you can pretty much have a structure get destroyed or at least be, at very minimum, be unreliable and not something that your buyer is going to want to buy. You need to point that out as a home inspector and let the client know that they can resolve the problem inexpensively before it becomes a big, nasty fix or maybe a trip to the hospital or the morgue for one of their kids. So again, the fix for that, fairly simple, uh, is you're going to want to make sure that you have a horizontal support for those two sloping legs to keep the walls together. Next subject, also within the, the attic category, is signs of water. Every home inspection client wants to know where the mold is in their house. And that's one of the key things that you're looking for inside an attic. Sometimes you can have that water come in from the swamp cooler. If you have a swamp cooler, it is almost guaranteed, swamp cooler on the roof, it is almost guaranteed that there will be leaking from that swamp cooler. Sometimes it goes down the flue. Sometimes it destroys the shingles and then proceeds further downhill and, and destroys your roof deck and, and then just destroys everything else. Swamp coolers on roofs can be brutal. And so quite often, you'll see a roof deck that is rotted and black from swamp cooler drainage. You will certainly want to pay attention to that and write that up. In that particular case, when the swamp cooler has done that sort of thing, the deck will be trash, and you may want to recommend that they actually replace the roof and the roof deck in that area. Because, you know, one thing, again, you, you want to protect your client for all kinds of reasons. You don't want to get sued. You want them to be happy with what you're doing, and the last thing anybody wants to do is to fail their client. So... Let's imagine that you've got this swamp cooler that has leaked and leaked and leaked, and now the, the deck is trash and it's rotted. You've got your client going up there, and he's walking around. Next thing he knows, he's falling through the roof. At that point, you're going to get a very angry phone call, and you will know that you have failed your client. You don't need any of the above, so definitely write up any take a very close look around the swamp cooler to see where the water damage is happening and write that up make sure the client knows that that is a high priority issue now other ways that you can get water into your attic one of them is ice damming and we talked about that briefly in the ventilation section the bottom line with ice damming <coughs> is that uh, and usually what causes it is you've got water, again, that is being melted on the roof up high. It runs down the roof a little ways, but not all the way. And it then dams up, and you've got this ice lens, and the ice lens starts prying up shingles. And then you've got water entry into the attic and the living space, and things start getting ugly quickly. You will see signs of ice damming in areas where maybe you've got multiple slopes coming together. Quite often, if you've got a great deal of drainage that's trying to drain into a smaller area, 
quite often I'll see a, a home, for example, where you have a northeast and south slope that are all coming together in one point. And then they'll have, instead of a 6-on-12 pitch or an 8-on-12 pitch, they might have a 2-on-12 pitch, just trying to get that water down the rest of the way. So you can have ice damming at locations like that. By the way, the pitch ratio that I just mentioned would be horizontal run to, to vertical. So if you got a 2-on-12 pitch, that's pretty flat. If you got an 8-to-12 pitch, that's steeper. And a 12-on-12 pitch would basically be a 45-degree angle. Pretty good slope. Now, uh, you can also have ice damming happen when you have a slope that, that forces water perhaps up against a wall. This happens on two-story homes, and you know maybe you've got an entry that is tall and nice and pretty. And, but if you've got a roof slope that actually forces drainage towards a wall, be it stucco or masonry or whatever it may be, you better have very good flashing to make sure that, that you don't have ice damming happen there and then have that water get into the living space. Quite often you can't see the flashing, so as a home inspector you just need to write that up. The water needs to go all the way down to the drip line, drain into a rain gutter system, be managed from there. If it does not, then you've got something to write up and tell your client about. So on the underside of the ice dam, you can see histories of that within the attic. And again, be careful as you're getting around into the attic, three points of contact, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But you can see where ice damming and water issues have occurred because there will be staining. You know, usually it's black in the roof deck where the ice dam happened. Now... One experience that I had, and, and this probably goes in how to end your career, but make sure that you know what you're talking about. I did have one other inspector that went in and he saw the honey-colored, I want to call that a pine tar. It's not pine tar, it's fir tar, but everybody knows what pine tar is, so we'll say it's pine tar. And he saw that honey-colored stuff, and he crawled out of the attic, and he says, you've got mold everywhere in this attic. And by the way, he recommended his brother-in-law as the remediator, and the price tag was $5,000. So before the client actually decided to pay the $5,000, they called me up, and I went in there, and I said, um, that's not mold at all. That's, that's pine tar. That's fir tar. And so we all had a good laugh, and we wished the guy was in jail. Uh, we wished there was a reason why we could put him in jail, but there's not. He just runs that sort of a business. As a franchisee, if you're doing that sort of thing and I hear about it, I will fire you immediately. I do not need anybody to run their business in a way where they're just getting money because they want more money. It's about service and honesty and respect. So... We've got the roof leak that can also uh, be a sign of water. Let's say that we've got maybe a flat roof uh, or maybe we've got an asphalt shingle. And, you know, whatever the roof leak may be, if you've got water entry, and you can quite often see it, again, because the deck itself will be black, and sometimes you'll have an indentation, basically a bowl where you can see that the water has gotten in. Sometimes that's around flashing that maybe should not have been there or it's improper around an attic vent or a sewer vent or what have you but you can see the indentation where the 
the water has actually caused the insulation to sag. And so those are roof leaks you're going to want to write up. Sometimes you can also have water from the bathroom vent. I've seen a couple of homes where maybe you've got Joe homeowner that likes to take long, hot showers. And he knows that, that all that hot steam can create a mold problem in the bathroom. So he turns on the bathroom vent and he sucks all of that water, all that humidity, into the attic space. Generally, attics can handle that, but in some cases, you've got, obviously, your bathrooms are generally out, especially the master bathroom, is generally out near the outer wall where you've got a minimum vertical distance between the ceiling and the, and the roof deck. Maybe you've only got a few inches because the slopes are coming together towards the soffit. If that is the case, I have seen where you've actually had a mold colony build up on the bottom side of the roof deck because you've got all that humidity. Now, that is a very unlikely event because for mold to happen, you've got to have a continuous moisture source. And the humidity, even if it's every day, you would expect it to kind of evaporate during the rest of the day. But like I say, I have seen where that has happened, and yes, that did cause mold, and then that causes buyers to be nervous. So pay attention to that. Another sign of water isn't water at all, but you definitely need to pay attention to it. And that would be, roll the drums, critter urine. In one of the homes that I was asked to come out and look at, they, they wanted me to basically tell them why the roof was leaking because they had obvious signs of water coming from the second story ceiling in the outer corner and they wanted to know where the water was coming from so i went in and i looked at the house and sure enough you know we've got this pyramid shaped water damage that was obvious in the outer corners of the bedroom and so i went looking i got up onto the roof and the roof was in great condition. It could not have been better. It was a brand new asphalt shingle that was not leaking. There wasn't any sign of ice damming. There wasn't any valleys, which is a an intersection of two slopes coming together. There wasn't any of that. So I thought, okay, our water is not coming from the roof. Next thing I did is I said, all right, maybe we've got a leaking pipe. So I went looking for leaking pipes and we didn't have anything. At this point, I went actually into the attic, and I went wandering carefully over. First thing I noticed is actually poop, about three-quarters of inch diameter, and then, of course, it's in the pile that you quite often see. And that was in the middle of the attic, but that didn't explain the water in the outer corners. So turns out that we had raccoons in that attic, and that happens actually quite a bit. What had happened, apparently the feces don't smell nearly as bad to a raccoon as the urine does. So they will go to the outer corners to urinate. Apparently they'll do their feces anywhere. So you can figure that one out for yourself. It was fun telling the the client that that water damage wasn't water. And we have more stories like that and more experiences that you can gain from in, in the segment on critters in the attic and basically critters everywhere. Let's cover those briefly here. So you've got 
mice that are by far the most common critter that's going to get in the attic, you can tell a mouse history because you're going to have little one-inch diameter burrows that go down into the insulation. You can have one-inch hallways that go across the top of the insulation. Mice are looking for food and shelter, and an attic makes great shelter. It's going to be a lot more temperate, especially if you've got lots of insulation. You're going to have temperatures on the on the top of the insulation are going to be brutal. And in the summer, you're going to have temperatures up there 150 degrees, give or take. But at the bottom of the insulation, it will more closely resemble what's going on in the house. So they're going to want to dig down in there, and that makes a great shelter. So as you get up there, you can often see the little pathways and the burrows that mice will create. And when you see that, of course, you can put a smile on your face and freak out the buyers. Mice in attics happen pretty commonly, I want to say at least 50% of the time. So as you're talking to your clients, you can tell them after you completely creep them out that it happens often. And then you can talk about solutions for keeping the mice out of those areas in the future. One of the homes that I inspected, that one was built probably in the, I don't know, about the late 20s. I got up there, and I was pushing the attic hatch out of the way, and I got rained on by mouse feces. That home had been, the attic had been basically a big fat mouse den for, I don't know, 80 years or so plus, and it was in rugged shape. You had basically a quarter inch of mouse feces all the way across there, including across the top of the attic hatch. Now, mouse feces, of course, can contain the hantavirus, which can either put you definitely in the hospital. It can actually kill you. Hantavirus, not something you want to sneeze at, and definitely not something you want to be stirring up into the air that you're breathing. If you've got a whole bunch of feces of any variety, especially mouse feces, and you're walking across the attic stirring those up, you're just begging for trouble. So what you do, you poke your head up in the attic. You know, If you can get up there safely, then do so. Nobody is expecting you to do things that are unsafe either to you or to them. You know, you're being paid well to be an expert, but don't put anybody's life at risk, including your own, just in the name of doing a good job. You need to provide for your family, and dying is a little bit more than you're being asked to do. So you see the mouse feces up there. Make a note of that. That's a high-priority issue. And uh, you can get somebody up there in one of those environmental moon suits to go in and take care of that. Same sort of thing relates to bats. If you get bats in there, quite often... You won't just have, I mean, you can have a couple of mice usually, but bats, quite often you'll have a couple thousand. Now the bats, you can tell the difference because the bats usually are hanging off the ridge support or whatever they can latch onto, and so the poop will be in a pattern beneath that space. Mice are just going to kind of be all over. Snakes can happen inside an attic, especially in the southern United States where you don't have the temperature differences that are found elsewhere. For example, if the home is in Montana that you're inspecting, snakes just aren't going to be able to survive up there because it's too cold in the winter, even if they do try to burrow underneath. But depending on where the inspection is at, 
snakes can be an option. So when you're getting up there, just be aware that you may not be alone up in that attic. And again, three points of contact. Keep your eyes open. Make sure you know where you're stepping. Raccoons can also get up there. I told you about my little raccoon story of urine in the corners. And I've also seen where you have birds that get up in an attic. And they were getting in through an on-screen gable vent. And so they were just flying in and living there. And the sellers or the occupants thought that was cute. And so they allowed it. But what happened is you get a couple hundred birds up there. The urine alone was going down into the living space. The urine, of course, being unhealthy all by itself, it was causing some hospital bills, but the urine was also keeping the wall wet enough to support a termite colony. Nobody needs all that. Birds are not allowed inside an attic. So you have any of these sorts of issues, mice, bats, snakes, raccoons, birds, whatever it is, not okay. It's not cute. It's not allowed. It definitely needs to be written up. You need to make sure that the client is aware this is not acceptable and they need to take steps immediately to eliminate that. Now, how do we eliminate is always the next question. What you're going to want to do is eliminate both food and shelter. In the case of a mouse, he's looking for food inside the living space, but shelter is is that attic. And bats, same sort of thing. Not only food inside an attic, but there's definitely shelter. For the snake, he might actually be following the mice up there. And so you get the idea. And I've heard the analogy of basically if you've got a tub that is overflowing, the first thing you do is not to pull the drain. The first thing you want to do is shut off the water. So shutting off the water in the case of an attic is going to be eliminating the pathways in to the extent that you can find them. Maybe you've got holes in the exterior. Maybe you've got a dryer vent that doesn't have a cover. Maybe you've got a gap between the foundation and a stucco wall where mice can get in. Maybe you've got a mouse elevator, which is basically that corner bead around siding exteriors. However, you just want to take a long, hard look at the perimeter and see how mice can get in. Yes, they can climb up. Masonry walls happen to me. While I was a child, I listened to to mice climbing up, and I thought they were actually in my bedroom wall. It turns out they were on the exterior climbing up and um, getting into the eaves after they'd climbed up that nine-foot exterior. Bottom line for critters of any sort is eliminate the pathways going in. That can be very difficult, but that's step one. Step two is to trap what remains and of course you're going to want to eliminate any food sources if somebody's got a bag of rice that is sitting there in the crawl space or the basement or wherever it may be the storage room and the mice are getting into that you've got to eliminate that source and then finally there are traps and poisons that you can use you want to make sure you use one that is for example, if you got a trap, it needs to be monitored so that you don't just trap the mouse and then it sits there and decays and you can't get back into there and you've got this reek smell for the next number of months while this thing is decaying. You can also use poisons that make the critters want to leave and just in case they don't or they can't, they're made so that the smell is much less noticeable. So, final segment in this addict's category is how to end your career in an attic. First of them is 
step on a cross brace. Now, those cross braces are not intended to be structural support because you've got basically triangles, whether you've got interior supports or not, they're, they're triangles, and they want to fall over. So if you've got a cross brace, uh, those cross braces are intended to keep that falling over from happening, but it was never intended to support your 200 pounds. So you step on one of those things, it gives way, and now you are on a one-way trip down through the the floor of the attic and the ceiling of the living space to the floor below, and then you've got another one-way trip to the hospital if you survive. You don't need to do that. So don't ever step on a cross brace. Don't ever trust your weight onto anything until you've tested it. For example, if you're stepping on a rafter, make sure that you know it will hold your weight before you put all of your weight on that. Be very careful about letting a novice client follow you. Sometimes a client is going to want to go up into the attic. And I have never had a problem doing this, or I've I've never actually had an accident doing this. But I did have a client that just uh, got up into the attic and started walking like he was on the kitchen floor. You know, there was a piece of particle board that was laid there. So thankfully, he any step he took wasn't going to be a fall down into the living space below. But then he just didn't pay attention, and he assumed the whole attic was that way. If he would have fallen, that could have very easily been a career ender for me, and then I had to quickly stop him before he did something exceptionally stupid. Just assume that your clients are stupid, because many of them will be, and it's hard to tell which ones will are the stupid ones. Now, I'm not here to tell you what your legal liabilities are because, frankly, I don't know. You may want to talk to a lawyer about that or just be careful about how you do things. If you do have a client that is capable, you know, maybe he's been in addicts before. Maybe he understands and maybe you need to show him raccoon poop or maybe you need to show him a heavy moldy area. Just give him the proper warnings and make sure that he tells you that he has been in addicts before and he knows the dangers. Three points of contact. You know, one of the rules for being on a ladder is that you need three points of contact so that you're not falling off the ladder and dying. Same thing applies in attics. You know, you've got two feet and two arms, and at any given time, you need to have three of those four items be in firm contact with the structure. Maybe you're stepping from point A to B, and you think that where you're stepping to is solid, and it turns out it's not you've got a couple of remaining points of contact where you can hang on and not fall through the roof. That always sucks. And again, another way to end your career, at least with me, is to lie, cheat, and steal. If you're in business with me, you're in the business of being honest and providing a valuable service. You're not in the business to dream up ways to come up with another $50 to add to your total. If you say there's mold up there, then there needs to be mold. And you need to make sure that you know what mold looks like. You're in business to serve and to respect. As a home inspector, trust is vital. You have people that are you know, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a home, and you are their only line of defense against them buying a lemon. The trust that they put in you is huge, And you need to make sure that you deserve that trust. So don't do anything crazy. If you treat people right, it will turn out well for you in the end. If you're there just to make an extra buck, 
I don't need to deal with you. So those are the things that, to make sure that you're taking care of in the attic. We covered insulation, we covered ventilation, we covered structural issues, signs of water, critters, and we covered how to end your career. This is a basic understanding of the inspection points and the do's and don'ts inside an attic. There is more that you can learn inside an attic than what I have just given you. Good resources for that would be notchi.org, or you can go to my website. There will be other links. Okay, congratulations. You are now trained for doing inspections in the attic. Get up there, do so carefully, take care of your client, make me proud.